to start with some music. You know this song, but you do not know this version of this song. Miles O'Reilly and Ronan O'Snoddy.
song but I told you that you wouldn't know that version of it wonderful new version of the Fields of Athenrye from Ronan O'Snoddy and Miles O'Reilly and Ronan and Miles are going to stay with us they will be yeah, singing another song for us later in the programme and we'll also have a chat with them about their upcoming tour and what they're up to throughout the months of January and February but let's uh, continue now with our recommendations for what to watch on the TV this week the fourth season of True Detective sees Jodie Foster take the lead in Night Country based in the fictional town of Ennis, Alaska. The men that operate as research station vanish. To solve the case, detectives Danvers and Navarro will have to confront the darkness themselves and dig into the haunted truths that lie buried under the ice. Echo from Marvel Studios is a spin-off of Hawkeye, introduces the character of Echo's origin story and explores her Native American culture and criminal record, starring Cap, uh, Peter Capaldi and Cross Jumbo has two detectives in a tug of war over historic murder conviction. It deals with issues of race, institutional failure and the quest to find common ground in a polarised Britain. The whole thing is set in contemporary London. With me in studio, Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser, who have been watching all three series. And um, we'll start with True Detective and Night Country. In fact, I remember, Jen, just before Christmas, Mm -hmm. you (laughs) said this was one of the ones that you were very excited about. Yeah, definitely, because True Detective, for me, season one especially, I think, is something that a lot of people took to their hearts. Um, It was really groundbreaking at the time, back in 2013, 14, 14... 14 because it's 10 years now so it's this anthology show and it was very rich and eerie mm. and I had this truly unforgettable cinematography from the brilliant Adam Arkpaw and it was very it was supernatural it had this sinister plot and I had this very in-depth performances by Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson and they you know they were paired off in this convoluted yeah. kind of story that pulled at all different the underbelly of American yeah. society and that didn't happen then for season two. Um, I think what happened was you had a showrunner with a big ego, uh, Nick Pizzolatto, and he was unwilling to relinquish the control of the show. And I think he started to believe his own hype about the series and that's where it fell apart. And season two, unfortunately, starred Colin Farrell, but I don't think many people stuck with it because it went, well, it was, you know, mm. up its own fundament, if you want to call it that way. <laughs> How <laughs> nicely put. And then season three was, a, you know, a return to form in a way because I had a great, you know, there was great performances in it by Mar- Herschel Ali as a detective yeah. over three different time frames. This is a completely different kettle of fish season oh, four. Yeah, season four is a new thing uh, altogether. But the thing about these uh, True Detectives seasons is that they are anthologies, so you can just watch the one series. You don't need to know anything about the previous uh, uh, in- incarnations at all, Chris. Yeah. There's a there's more than a whiff of of Fargo of this particular piece for me at any rate. I haven't seen the first episode, and something I think a lot of that has to do with the snow setting. We're in Alaska, yeah, yeah, uh, not a, quite the Fargo setting, but something similar. It's a little less comical than Fargo, but mm. there is a very twisted, dark sense of humor in there. Um, and you're right, as an anthology, it works within its own parameters. And um, and just even going back to like the previous or the success of other mm. seasons after season one, True Detective was a show like unlike any other. And I think then to expect it to be every 
like every other season that there would be a season two the next year season three that was too much I mean these things take an awful lot of time so it has been a few years since uh, since uh, season three it's been ten years since season one and you have Isa Lopez this uh, extraordinary Mexican filmmaker who has been basically given the keys to the true detective universe despite the fact that she actually went to HBO with an original idea this originally started out as just a show called Night Country and it was actually HBO that said can you turn it into a, a true yeah. detective story? She's gone and done something that Nick Pazzolato hasn't been able to do with the last few seasons, which is to breed fresh life into it. So Jodie Foster is taking the lead as uh, a detective in this town of Ennis, Alaska. We're 150 uh, miles north of the Arctic Circle. And it's Christmas time, which means it's a season when the sun doesn't come out. And it's in it's, fact, it opens on December the seventeenth, the last sunset. That's it. So yeah. there's there's a whole period then when there's total darkness. Oh, it's night time for days, which might explain why some of the characters are you know a little bit strange. You would start to kind of lose control of your mind a little bit. Um, but eight men from a research station in, in the middle of uh, all of this snow and mountainous area, they have just vanished yep. into thin air. And so detectives are called in because although there's no sign of any foul play at first, you know it looks as though they've literally vanished. There's nothing. It looks as though they were all just in the middle of eating sandwiches. And watching shows and hanging out, um, there's a severed tongue found in the kitchen. So yeah. Agent Dav- or uh, D- Detective Danvers, played by Jodie Foster, thinks that this might have something to do with a previous case. And and, and the, the previous case is also of huge interest to Trooper Navarro, who's the Callie Rice character. And the two of them, there's a great dynamic between mm. kind of competitive thing, kind of FBI detective type of feel, Trooper detective. Let's have a listen to a clip and we get a sense of just how competitive they are with each other. And it's this possible link to an old case that they're talking about here, uh, Callie Rice as Trooper Navarro, Detective Liz Danvers played by Jodie Foster and strong language in the midst of this. Not her tongue. How do you know? It's been six years. It can't be her tongue. But it's a woman's tongue. I don't know. Right. Let me see it then. No. You got bounced off the case. Remember? You're a trooper now. You're not APF anymore. Remember that? It's a woman's tongue. It's an Anupiak woman's tongue. And you know this because your spirit animal came to you in a dream? <sighs> My spirit animal eats old fucking white ladies like you for breakfast, Nervous. Careful. Uh, how's Daddy Conley? Treating you good? Ah, uh, right. Is that all, Trip Navarro? I'm sure you got some caribou to scrape off the road somewhere. I never even wanted to look at her files. And now you're just brushing her off like, like she's. Did you get all that? What files are you talking about? All right, go look in the cold case files. Get me uh, Ann Masu Kotak. There you go, Jodie Foster and Callie Rice in a scene from True Detective Season 4, which is called Night Country. It's a phenomenal um, dynamic between the kind of, the competitive nature of the trooper versus the detective. And clearly there's a big history there. But also it echoes back to Season 1 because they are this odd couple with the unknowable Navarro echoing kind of Russ Cole's, uh, you know, mysticism. And then yeah. you have Jodie Foster's Danvers being this very cynical... Having none of this spirit animal stuff. Marty, Marty Hart kind of personality to her. So it does echo that kind of relationship that was so well done in the first yeah. season. So I think people will enjoy that dynamic between the two of them completely. It, but it's not just that. Um, it, it also takes, Jen, it, it, 
it's not just the work uh, comp- uh, competition that's mm. involved here. The, the family lives and the complicated intertwining of all of the stories. You couldn't even begin to explain you, you how they intertwine because it's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, a real mesh. But I will say that, you know, Jodie Foster's Liz Danvers, she is a character for the ages. She's this mm. desperate workaholic control freak. She's tough on everyone from her placid young recruit, Peter Pryor. She, she's in constant contact with him, even pulling him away from his young family on Christmas Eve. I mean, her stepdaughter, she's tr- struggling to find her identity as, you know, a half, like she has heritage from indigenous people. And then, you know, even on, you know, her ex-work partner, who she's now thrown back with, Evangeline Navarro. And no one is deemed good enough by her standards. And yeah. that sounds like, you know, certain female characters that we have seen in crime dramas over the years from, you know, DCI Jane Tennyson in Prime Suspect to Kate Winslet's Mayor Sheehan and Mayor of Easttowns. Uh, but, you know, I think Danvers is on another level of indignation and frustration. And she has annoyed so many people in this small town by sleeping with half of their husbands, which she, you know, definitely shouldn't have. And she's bitterly sardonic. She's rational to a fault and has no need for nicety, sympathy or even empathy. And there's something about the way Jodie Foster yeah. plays her. Like, I, I've grown up with Jodie Foster. I've seen her, you know, as Clarice Starling. She is one of my, you know, cinema touchstones. And even from, you know, Taxi Driver days. And she is an, an actor at the top of their game. There's no one... Well, like, she, she never was anywhere but at the top she of her inhabits this character yeah. in such a believable and relatable way that it jumps off the screen. One brief mention, uh, Fiona Shaw is part of this as well. Now, I've, I've only seen episode one where she kind of, you get a teaser as to what might be going on, something in the background there, and the supernatural is involved here yeah, as well. Yeah, there's, there's a bit more of a push in, in terms of the supernatural side of things because Fiona Shaw is playing this local woman, Rose, whose dead lover literally shows her where the lads in the research station are buried in the snow. Um, so you're thinking to yourself, is she actually seeing someone? Did somebody actually show her to it? Um, but she actually is playing um, a character that's not an, and that's not a million miles away from Rust and the character that Matthew McConaughey played in the first season and what I mean by that is True Detective is very good at having these characters go off on all of these philosophical ramblings but it's never really had a character like Rustin in the last 10 yeah. years you know that time is a flat circle speech that mm. he gave in the first season Fiona Shaw is inhabiting that role and, and, and it needed that it needs something it needs a weird character that yeah. we can I, I'm just aware she's... that people might be thinking oh do I need to know season no, 1 no, you don't need to tell no. there are echoes for those who have seen season 1 there are echoes there but if you haven't you can just dip right go right into season four Definitely. you don't even have to look back and Issa Lopez actually yep. said the, the, the filmmaker behind it that it's a dark mirror it's basically just holding up a mirror a after 10 years to, to the first season yeah. but you don't need to have seen it and it looks great all that snow was brilliantly brilliantly <laughs> done um, available to, no caveats from either of you it's just no a, and I think like it. if you're put off by season one being a bit swagger and masculinity a bit you it's know, not here brooding yeah. this is the polar opposite this is women frozen you know the frozen feminine the frozen feelings of women and emotions and voices submerged As he says, under the ice. It's a dark mirror. Stunning. Yeah, stunning, I think, um, from what I've seen. I'm dying to get to the rest of it. True Detective Night Country, available on Sky Atlantic and now from Monday, January the 15th. Let us move on uh, to number two on our list this evening. Um, this is Echo. From Disney Plus, it follows Maya Lopez, also known as Echo, a deaf Native American woman who has been caught between, who's caught between heroism and criminality for most of her life. Tell us a bit. I, I worry when I hear Marvel because I think, how yeah. much do I need to know? Unlike um, the previous situation where you need to know nothing, what do I need to know? Well, it's ironic because they've built this under a new banner, which they're calling Marvel Spotlight. And the, you know, the, the even the producer Kevin Feige has come out and said Marvel Spotlight are going to be these grounded, character-driven series where the viewer doesn't need to have seen everything you don't need the wider scope of the MCU you don't need to have seen the 30 odd films or the other series yeah. but 
this starts true? as a spin-off of a series yeah. of, of a series that was out a couple of years ago and the first half an hour of the opening episode is feels like a previously on echo sort of setup despite the fact that this is the first echo so i think all of that is just bull um and unfortunately from the very beginning we're on the back foot so we are reminded of some scenes and, and some setups from from hawkeye where we're introduced to um alka, alka fox's maya lopez she is as you said at the top a deaf native american criminal who was raised in tamala oklahoma her father was a criminal too she was in a car crash with her mm. mother when she was a kid the mother died the father took them to new york and they all started working with this guy named wilson fisk who's 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 also known as the kingpin played by vincent d'onofrio and he's this cartoonish crime lord that everyone is afraid of i mean even the police just hand over their criminals to him all right as chris has said there jen we do get you we are brought up to speed if you haven't seen the marvel you're you're brought up to speed here but we're not brought up to speed quickly I, does does it move beyond just, just telling you the background like i mean i feel like for me i'm not part of the marvel universe at all and i never have been i haven't engaged with it at all i enjoyed something like wandavision because that started elizabeth olsen mm. because i thought it was something completely different outside of your average superhero story and i did feel like even though the first episode as chris was saying has this kind of recap of the the lore basically for dummies like me but at the same time i think that is treating your audience, even the newcomers that are coming in like me, with, with a bit of like lack of intelligence because yeah. it could have been dealt with in a different way as in showing flashbacks as the series kind of pans out and it doesn't do that at all. I okay. mean, I suppose... You could liken the Marvel Cinematic Universe to something that I love, Bravo's Real Housewives franchise. But the thing is, the key difference is, I don't have to watch the Real Housewives of Atlanta to understand the goings of the Real yeah. Housewives of New York. And I feel with Marvel, the there's so much responsibility yeah. that comes with it that if All you right. don't know about it, you feel lost. I think that probably tells me whether I should watch it or not. If you don't need, know about it, you'll feel lost. It, neither of you are raving about this. All episodes streaming on Disney Plus from Wednesday, January the 10th. Let us move on to our third episode. Uh, and this, I think, is a big recommendation. Criminal Record streaming on Apple Plus uh, from Wednesday, January the 10th. Ugh, the tension in this, yeah. even from the very first phone, there's an anonymous phone call at the very top of the program. In fact, the very top of the program is Peter Cabaldi driving a couple in a car, and I'm already scared for them. Yeah. Uh, as he's, the, the tension is uh, really, really ramped up from the very beginning. Explain who Capaldi is, first of all. Uh, yeah, I think if Capaldi was driving me around London, I'd uh, I'd be all in on the stories, but I'd be terrified <laughs> of him. Um, yeah. He is a guy named Daniel Hegarty who works as a detective still, but also moonlights as this elite sort of Uber driver. Mm. And he's filling uh, a couple of people, you know, his pa- passengers in his car in on some of his grislier uh, detective stories. And you think to yourself, okay, clearly something is going to happen in this car. He's going to say something that's going to set up the whole thing. Paul, um, uh, the Paul Rubman, the guy who, who who created the series, then pulls the rug from under us, and we're taken into this anonymous nine 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 call, where this poor woman who says that her boyfriend is trying to kill her. She also says that her boyfriend has committed another crime, another murder. Uh, the person on the other end of the call is thinking, okay, you need to give me your name here. She won't. But she says that the, her boyfriend committed a murder for which someone else went down for. And He's they're serving a 24-year prison in White Cross prison. Yeah. So that's where Kush Jumbo's character comes in. She's a young detective uh, who is assigned to this call and asked to have a look into it, see if it's a hoax or see if it's worth yeah. following And it's up. not too long before she comes up with um, finding out that the, the previous case had been tried or the, the officer on that case was the Peter Cabaldi character. Character Daniel Hegarty, and here she is then, Crush Lumbo as June Lenker, going to see Detective Chief Inspector Daniel Hegarty, played by Peter Cavaldi, to to ask about the old case that he worked on and just see what he has to say. I'm investigating a, what was initially a DV case regarding a, a phone call, emergency phone call last night in the Hayes Lane area. 
Anonymous caller, Portuguese speaker, assaulted by a boyfriend, active threat to life. Scumbag. Have we got him? No, not yet. How can I help if I come across him? Well, we don't have a name yet, but the reason I'm here, the caller, they made an allegation regarding wrongful conviction. It was an old case that you'd worked on as SIO. Okay. A murder. Victim was Adelaide Burroughs. Burroughs. 2000 and. Case went to trial 2012. 2012, yeah. Already. The man charged. Errol Mattis. Errol. Poor man's OJ. Excuse me. And your call has come forward as a witness, has she, or...? No. No, sorry. No. Well, uh, this caller, she says her boyfriend on a number of occasions has claimed responsibility for the killing. Well, you've got a statement from her to that effect. No. Like I said, the, the, the call was anonymous. There we go. Peter Capaldi and Cush Jumbo in a scene there from Criminal Record. Jen, the <laughs> dynamic between the two women in... in, in uh, True Detective. True Detective is, is one thing. Yeah. The dynamic between Haggerty yeah. and the Crush Jumbo character here is something else. It really is. And like he is, you know, you can hear from his comments there, you know, this he thinks this man is a poor man's OJ. And that is the kind of jumping off mm. point of where the show goes. Because I think all great, you know, crime dramas from Prime Suspect that I've mentioned to Cracker to something like unforgotten they're all stories about the fabric of society and the genesis of certain crimes and the complicated nature of being the person investigating and the psychology behind these crimes and you know criminal record is doing the same thing and it's pulling out like socio-political threads of racism sexism poverty and privilege and that is what the the peter capaldi character is standing for he is you know in- institutionalized racism at its worst and sexism at its worst and then you have the kush jumbo character june lenker who's trying to her best to fight it from the inside um and whether or not that works out is another thing for her but it you know it kind of it's so good because it shoes kind of moralizing or yeah. grandstanding it's it's it kind of focuses on the smaller moments of microaggression that she experiences her lived experiences of this sexism whether it's you know her own dci who assigns her the domestic violence case in the first place saying oh it needs a woman's, woman's touch, touch yeah. to a part where kim cordwell played by sean dooley who's hegarty's colleague he deliberately mistakes you know her june for her black colleague chloe on purpose to basically put the two women in their place and it's those subtle moments that really jolt it to life and the other thing I think that it does really well here is we we get the there's a murdered woman from the previous the old case we meet her son now whatever number of years we are 10-12 years later uh, and we're going to get that thread of the story as well so there's something very interesting going on it is, yeah. He's the younger, uh, and you think, and you think as well from from putting that many stories together, it might get a little bit tangled. But Not actually, this series is very good at explaining. <laughs> the scripting itself. is really tight. It is very tight, and I think Capaldi is is on better form here than he was in the show we talked about last year called The Devil's Hour. And that, because I was thinking going into this thing, the name didn't instill much confidence. The fact that Peter Capaldi had just made The Devil's Hour that was a bit of a slog. This one is a lot better. He's in much better form as this chilly, corrupt copper who surrounds himself with bad eggs. I thought Kush Jumbo was 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 terrific as as a as a woman who's being undermined in the workplace and at home as well, the series is very good at exploring her home life where mm. she's married to this white man who's the stepfather of her son from a previous marriage and he is constantly trying to explain racism to her which is just fascinating that she goes home after putting up with all of these head of balls and idiots in work and then has to put up with one at home. Well, he's so, a therapist, isn't he? he? He, Yeah, and then he lets her know as well. Um, so there's that also kind of leaves her paranoid about her own place yeah. Yeah. in society and in her job and you see that like she's endlessly worried about her young son who 
who's yeah. like a preteen and what kind of world I, he's going to enter I, I, I into. I decided to watch 10 or 15 minutes of this, but I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I had to watch yeah. the whole hour of the first episode. I'm guessing I'll, I've loads to see in the remaining episodes. Yeah, mm. I think yeah. Uh, we talked about the first great uh, uh, detective or crime drama of 2024 being True Detective. This is the second. It's a oh, lot right. better than I expected. I'm okay. looking forward to seeing more. Uh, and that is, 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 is Criminal Record streaming on Apple TV Plus from Wednesday, January the 10th. Previously, we were talked about Echo on Disney Plus from Wednesday, January the 10th. That's tomorrow as well. You'll have to wait a little while for True Detective Night Country, which will be on Sky Atlantic and now from next Monday, January the 15th. Have you seen the old man in the closed-down market Kicking up the papers with his worn-out shoes In his eyes you see no pride, handled loosely at his side Yesterday's paper telling yesterday's news Oh, the unmistakable voice there of Ralph McTell and the streets of London. January means it is time for that annual explosion of traditional music that is Tradfest. And the strains there of Ralph McTell's Streets of London will tell you that this year's programme of events promises a lineup of greats. In two weeks' time, Arena will be kick-starting Tradfest with two nights of live music from some of the greats of Irish and international folk music and the best of new trad talent. Monday the 22nd and Tuesday the 23rd of January, we will be having quite a party at the Conference Centre in the upper courtyard of Dublin Castle. Tuesday the the 23rd is when we will have two musical greats, Ralph McTell, who you've just heard, and the great Janice in during the show. They will hand over to some young guns to reinterpret their music, Aoife Scott and Toshin. And if that wasn't enough, we will have Neil Martin and Louise McCahey performing Neil's show based on RMS Taylor. We'll bring you classic performances like Stockton's Wing, new talent in the form of Yankari Afrobeat Collective, who will bring fresh and funky vibes to the proceedings. Hip-hop and trad artist Strange Boy will be with us on Monday night, along with Irish Indian duo India Celtic. What a two nights we promise you there. There is uh, This is an event and two live arena shows to banish the mid-January blues. If you would like to attend the events, just log on to tradvest.com and of course we will be broadcasting live from Dublin Castle on both nights. Now, with me in studio once again are Ronan O'Snoddy and Miles O'Reilly. If you are listening at the top of the programme, you will have heard an absolutely stunning version of Fields of Athen Rye. Um, I said to you as as the ad break was on there, Ronan, it, it made me hear the song in a whole new way. How did that new version of the Fields of Athen Rye come in? Because the melody is kind of there somewhere. You hear it at times, but there's also that that guitar accompaniment that you have that changes the way we hear it well, I heard the words anyway uh, well, I learned the guitar part or I think I learned it it was <laughs> about 25 years ago from a fella called Fionn who was working out that part in Bray um, and um, I, I had the song on it like that's a long time ago 25 years yeah. yeah now that I say it it was just before the turn of the century I was living in a house in Bray but 
Lachlan O'Maron, Mick Ryan, and Fionn was around it. Um, and then I suppose I've been working on the mm. song for the uh, 10 plus years, you know. Um, and is, is this like is this is this a new iteration of it, Miles? I mean, it, the the two of you bring is this now its first time kind of coming out in the open, or has it been out in the open previous to this? It it hasn't been out in the open. I don't think we just recorded it today. Mm. Um, you know, committed it to tape, and uh, but it's not unlike Ronan to carry songs for twenty five years. You know, and he decides when they're ready to be revealed. You know, and this one was particularly when he played it to me, just unaccompanied without me there, I uh, or playing on it. It just had me in tears. So um, it's very fortunate that I can also contribute. But I guess that the, the fact that you do carry songs around for that length of time often run on, yeah. uh, and I know that your collaboration with Miles has been going on for quite a while now, obviously. But th- th- there must be a huge trust in the moment when you you open it out to somebody else and say, "Look, I've been kind of thinking about this, and I've been doing something with this." It must, it, it, both trust and difficult, I guess, too. Well, the, you have it there, the trust. Uh, I, I'm often worried that songs like that they'll make me cry. Like I'll, I'll, you know, crack up, up halfway yeah. through the song, and I really don't want that. I don't want to put myself in uh, in between the song and the person who's listening or hearing it. So in a way, it just takes me years to get over stuff, and then I can sing this song. Yeah, and, and well, it strikes me that I mean the, the album, the beautiful road, and I know you're going to sing. I think the title track for us before before we finish yeah. up this evening, um, the beautiful road was a very personal album. I remember the last time you were, you came in and spoke to me at the time it was released, and I remember the song about your mother, Neely and Aspaorum, yeah, and it was all about how she didn't leave you needing anything. Yes. You, you felt let her go, let her go off to her um, resting place. Uh, I mean, singing songs like that and holding emotion back must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, it, it is. And maybe that's where the trust comes in. Um, mm. Miles looks after me on the other side of the seesaw. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lovely dynamic when we play gigs live, depending on how emotion, how much... Uh, Ronan is is, is emotion, how emotional he is. Yeah. Like if there's a pause, for example, because he feels he's going to cry and and he can't sing the next verse, it's just great for me to be there, um, providing an atmosphere and giving him the space to actually collect himself and then continue. But I would guess that it is know. in that space and in those moments that real magic can happen because yeah. you can't. You can't make that up. You can't make that up. You can't make that up. And it's we're, we're very actually confident in our mistakes. <laughs> we love them. Uh, and when they arise and when strange things arise, we feel more vulnerable. Mm. But it, it, it works out better for the performance, I think. You know, you're heading out on tour, but you're also in Europe. You're part of the first Fortnite Festival, which we were speaking about last night on the programme as well. This is an exhibition by Emily Quinn, uh, Musical Strings, a portrait exhibition. You were telling me, uh, Ronan, you've seen some of the photographs in this exhibition. Yeah, and they're couples and our people who work together are brothers, our brothers. It's a collection of Mm. two people a lot of the time. It's a great study of two people, you know. Is there one of yourself and Miles? There is the two of us looking directly at the camera in our, each in our own, but in different colours. Miles yeah. is in a deep green and I'm in a deep red. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's well, like, some psychoanalyst can tell us what the deep green what and, the, and, means, yeah. and the deep red means. The Beautiful Road was the title of the album. Uh, in, in some ways it talks to this idea of being on the road, doesn't it? Not just mm-hmm. uh, on tour, but I suppose the road of a musical journey or a musical career. Um, and when I'm doing anything, I'm trying to um, 
things can be allegory or metaphorical. Mm. So, as you know, even Osquelga, uh, when you flip it, Schlina um, Fearing is that's the that's the eternal road. Yeah, Emma Her Schlina Fearing was the gone the way the the road of the true. Yeah. Truth, like that—that—that's a profound use of a road or shli or mm. a balach or a kasson, um, and I, I suppose, yeah, I—I I, I was trying to write about a couple of things on that particular road. I was trying to imagine a road. Um, and my friend passed away, and um, yeah, in particular, I mean, people pass. Like yeah. that's part of the whole part of the journey. Yeah, but. Um, and then every now and again, it's something can affect you a little bit more for really subtle reasons. Do you know, it might yeah. be just that, oh, there goes the tree hut. There's not going to be any more tree hut. You know, it's something little something like that. Something small thing that happens. But yeah, it can stand out. So, yeah, again, it took me a long time to be able to sing the song. Well, and, listen, uh, that's the one that you're going through. to. The one that you're going to give to us right now, and I'll know if there's a big long silence and Miles starts playing. I'll know <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> I'll let you go back up to the instruments. I'll give details out of the the tour dates and indeed that first fortnight event uh, shortly. But uh, let's listen to the title track from the recent album last year. Uh, the boy, the uh, Miles and Ronan were in talking to me about it, the beautiful road, and this is that title track. <laughs> Take the beautiful road All the way home Take it step by step and stone By merciful stone You don't need to be told The beautiful road A live version there from Miles O'Reilly and Ronan O'Study. Miles and Ronan heading out on the road themselves. They'll be in the Linden Art Centre in Mayo on the 20th of January. Loads of dates throughout uh, February, January and February, including um, Dunkern in Belfast, Hawkswell in Sligo, Dolan's in Limerick. And I noticed that they are in St John's Theatre in Listowel on February the 18th, which will link in perfectly with our next item, which is all about Sive at the Gaiety Theatre. Uh, and that um, Musical Strings, a portrait exhibition by Emily Quinn, free event, runs at Smock Alley Theatre, Banquet Hall, January the 7th through to January the 13th uh, first fortnight festival to find out details about that and if you want to find out all of Ronan and Miles' tour dates you can go to their website turningpirate.com John B. Keane's play Sive tells the story of a beautiful orphan living with her aunt and uncle in 1950s Kerry. She learns she's to be married off to Sean Dota, a much older man who can afford to pay the family for this young bride. Sive is already in love with lame man of her own age who returns her feelings. She's nobody's victim and she takes matters into her own hands and needless to say tragedy ensues. Andrew Flynn directs a new production at the Gaiety Theatre. Stars Fanula Flanagan as the matriarch, Nana Galvin, Norma Sheehan as the complicated Aunt Mina and Shadi Malone in the title role of Sive. Delighted that Andre Shadi and Andrew Shadi and Norma are with me in studio this evening. This John B. Keane Sive, it's such a centre of Irish theatrical repertoire. And it's been there for a long time. Why, Andrew? 
you'd have to ask the gaiety that. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect it's something to do with the, well, personally, I've I've worked on about five McDonough's with them. um, And I think it was time for, you know, to explore a different writer. Mm. And um, I think also it's on the leaving cert. There's no secret to that. So I'm sure there's more than a commercial reason why John B. Keane's side <laughs> is at the centre of the repertoire. Exactly. Um, but for me, when, when um, I had seen Sive, I saw it many, mm. many years ago, a fantastic production that Druid did. And so, but when, I had never read it, bizarrely. I'd read The Field, I'd read Big Maggie. And um, so when I sat down to read it, I was really taken with the power of the play. I, I, you know, considering it was his first play, um, it's really well crafted. And I'm pretty sure Martin McDonough had to have read this play <laughs> um, because there's an awful lot of similarities between Sive and, and certainly Beauty Queen. Mm. Um, and so the starting point for me was um, trying to find a way of making it maybe a little bit more relevant today. Um, one of the things that struck me was in the play, it's about the sale of a young woman. Um, that's central to the whole story. Mm. And some of the characters in the play, I suppose, they justify their actions and galvanise this plan because she's born out of wedlock. And they use that almost to downgrade her to some kind of second-class citizen. So, yeah, it's OK to sell her off. It's OK to sell her off. She doesn't have the same rights. She's born out of wedlock and she's brought shame on this family. Yeah. And I felt like that, thankfully, someone being born out of wedlock, it's no longer, it doesn't carry that well, even the phrase sounds so archaic now, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it? And yeah. a by-child. That's yeah. one of the, the, the phrases he uses. So that's what I felt we were going to lose. It's like, you know, for young audiences, certainly, it's thankfully that's no longer a yeah. scandal. Yeah. Um, and so when I went at it and thought about, is, is there a way that that could become more tangible again? That's where this notion of Sive being mixed race uh, came from, that I felt that's something, unfortunately, that still rears its head in our society. And that they, they because she's different, mm. they feel she's fair game. Um, and so that's where, and then, and then obviously I had to find somebody and thankfully Shadi came into my life. <laughs> and Shadi, when, when, when you read, uh, you're, you're a young woman, a contemporary Irish woman. When you read this piece and you saw her situation in the 1950s, what was your first reaction to it and to you then potentially playing it today? Yeah, well, I suppose I read it as me today and I was shocked whether it was today or, Mm. you know, 50 years ago, it was just a heartbreaking story of, you know, a girl who has been taken, you know, choice has been taken from her hands, which I think the thing that really stuck with me after I read it was that, you know, maybe not in this exact circumstances, but, you know, young women are still put into these circumstances um, so it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking, but I suppose sort of going back to what Andrew was saying about, you know, for a, a contemporary audience and sort of me being mixed race and that adding heat for, you know, the play, I think that will be really good because mm. it is really hard as a young person to understand that. I keep having to remind myself in rehearsals, myself and John Rice, who plays Liam Scoob, that, you know, it, we can't imagine that, like mm. a world like that. So I do think, yeah, this new 
sort of scythe with being mixed raced is yeah it's really it will really sort of help that idea and that type of demeaning of her that Andrew was talking yeah. about that happens in the 1950s because she was born out of wedlock mm. you know to use that archaic phrase do you see direct parallels in the experiences you've had yourself well funnily enough I I was born <laughs> out of wedlock um so I mean I can really relate in ways of sort of identity and sort of wanting to know where you're sort of without getting too deep mm. you know your your background and your history I think that is so important and I think that situation you know in the 1950s it's you know it's so crucial it's vital and the stakes are really really high yeah really high I, I love the, the description of Aunt Mina as complicated yeah she's an absolute <laughs> winch I so was she, going to say enormous she, that's she exactly she what she is through everyone yeah. she's, and I'm from Cork and like uh, John B. Keane would be my favourite writer because mm. you know I could relate to it he's from Even Kerry he's, he's from, from Kerry? Seoul yeah it's fine it's fine it's fine <laughs> well I can understand <laughs> it you know I don't get the whole Shakespeare and singing all those waffly people so I get I get Keane I get the language it's a little bit old but I can relate to every word of it because it's the way we still talk where I'm from I'm from a farm mm. in Cork Dennis Conway's from the same village as me he's playing um, Tomasheen Sean Rue in it and um, we're just all just a bunch bunch of boggers delivering this play that I've never seen I've never been in but I have just I'm just loving it because I worked with Andrew a few years ago mm. on a McDonough um, I mean let's not pick and choose but I, I'm really loving this one so we've eight weeks now and um, we were down in Listowel a couple of weeks ago kind of getting into the mood of it all and uh, sure ha- all of Listowel is coming up to see it and um, most of Cork is coming as well so it's uh, but it's it's just I just I just love it because I hate being up on stage doing some like deep like some like really crap plays right but this is good it's funny mm. it's deep and Andrew gets the pathos mm. like he gets the humour he gets the whole shebang so and um, John Hole oh Fanula Flanagan's in it yeah so she's she's she arrived she's yeah. just a star right we're just mesmerised in her company like she's like but, but when when you read John B. Keane now in 2023 yeah. and you know both Andrew and Chaddy have touched on this you know the 1950s aspect of it but it often strikes me when you actually look at it on the page it is incredibly modern in its mm. in its conception yeah sure there's people shooting the heads off each other in Kentuck you know I mean there's, there's people around the country and people are mad you know it's still going on in I'm mm. I'm a country person like we're not that we're all mad but you know what I mean I was going to say John B. You, might wrote, be, you might be a little bit careful no about he wrote it. about the people around him in the village yeah. and that's what I love about it I can absolutely relate to it do you know yes I'm not you know, selling a child, whatever, mm. you know, that doesn't connect anymore. But it's about greed. It's a love story. It's the, the themes of that. That's it, really. Uh, the parallels with Martin McDonough are, are quite interesting. I mean, there's no doubt that Martin McDonough's plays, they owe a lot to sing and they owe a lot to John B. Keane. I would agree. Um, I mean, for me, the big one was, even though I'd seen, I saw it maybe 20 years ago, um, I had forgotten the letter. There's a, a device in this play that is one of the main devices in Beauty Queen. And it's and it's interesting about the language, you, you, what you said there, Sean. When I read it first, I'm going, God, there's vast speeches, vast speeches. And you're kind of going, I wonder, is that repetitious? Could we take that away? But actually what we're finding this week, we're in our third week, you can't. It's all to do with the rhythm. And he has that same thing that McDonough has. Don't tamper with the rhythm. And it and when when the when the actor's up to speed, the speech flies. It doesn't mm. it doesn't feel long and wordy. It there's a there's a really distinct 
stylistic rhythm that he has. And I think once you get that, that's kind of the secret. But uh, but you're right, it is modern. Like we're discovering today, there's a whole innuendo between Mike Glavin, who Patrick Ryan is playing, and Norma's character, Mina, as to why they don't have a child. And the innuendo in the play is, who's at fault for not having the child? Yeah. They mightn't have had the vocabulary we would have mm. today. But it's a it's a it's a little subplot within within the story. So I'm getting the blame for being barren, where it turns out that he's probably got uh, some dysfunction that that didn't nobody knew about. But back that then. even that kind of judgment that was thrown on women uh, at that time. That, that don't mind that. Don't mind that time. <laughs> Only five minutes ago, women were women were blamed. Farmers down the country, if there wasn't a sun appearing, yeah, you know they weren't killing their wives like the kings did. But they, you know, the woman better produce the sun if the farm is there, and that's not that long ago. Now we know that the mandate determines from his sperm like whether it's a boy or a girl so it's nothing to do with us yeah and and but that treatment of even this yeah. this idea of the term barren it's a terrible term oh for god's sake sorry barren yeah i mean that's that's poison mm. i'm i'm uh, fanula flanagan's par, her character drills that into me the whole way through the play that i'd go up in flames i'm as dry as a yeah, sawdust Again, yeah. that's that type, but there, there's another side to that because the, the, the language quite definitely is is almost violent in that respect in the oh, way it, yeah. in the way it describes people and their particular state. But there is a kind of a melodramatic aspect to it, and Andrew touched on it there, Shadi, as well. Mm. You know, things like the letter as a as a kind of a ploy. So it it is the stakes are always very high here, and that melodramatic side can be difficult to inform. In a twenty-first century way, how 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 do you think you've gone about that in what you're doing in the production? Well, I think the language, you know, is a really big testament to that. I think a lot of the language can seem quite big and quite melodramatic, as you say, but I think it actually, weirdly enough, if this makes any sense, gives it truth. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of with the story as well being so raw and so sort of painful and emotional at times. That helps, you know. You kind of need the theatricalness of it to um, to sort of drive it, really. Um, what we find as well, or learning, I suppose, yeah. um, is if you play it real, yeah, and and mm. don't don't yeah. assume that you're trying to make it funny or yeah. Just yeah. that that the like characters myself, are Like myself, Dennis Conway, we're doing ham sandwich there yesterday <laughs> and then Andrew pulled us back going, you know. But it's good to go there as we, well. We went there you and to, then we you know, pulled it back and yeah. it was, then, yeah. it was, now, then it was relatable to yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but uh, people will be he- will be able to hear the English accent within your own natural <laughs> voice, obviously. Yeah, no, they won't. They will hear tonight. Not on stage, not So talk to me a little bit about that background and how what you've brought from your own background to inform this very Irish play. Yeah, well, um, a bit about my background is that my mum's um, side of the family is Irish mm. and I lived here for about 10 years in Tala. So I sort of grew up here and then moved to England with a Dublin accent. So um, after drama school, I ended up doing a great play in London, long story short. And uh, it sort of opened the Irish scene uh, for me because it was an Irish play set in Crumlin and from then I've gotten loads of Irish work sort of loads of Irish contacts which is lovely because it sort of feels like 
where I would be if I never left. It's kind of like a full circle. Give us a bit of your Irish there, go on, give us a bit of your Oh, no, you'll have to wait. Even I wouldn't put her on the spot like that. That's Mina coming out Yeah, exactly, there you go. so horrible to her. When you look at this John B. Keane play, do you keep it in its in its setting and in its costuming and in that respect, Andrew, are you keeping it back in the 1950s? Completely. And it's funny... Th- those words were bandied about for a while. This is a contemporary. It's 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 it has to be set in 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 the period. It's I felt um, that there was no effort to to change that. And like some of my research at the time was well, how realistic is this? That um, and some my first port of call was someone like Phil Linnet, who, who was living in Dublin in the mid fifties. And and then I found this amazing documentary in, in on a Guardian website for um, mixed race who were young, young, grown up in institutions now in Ireland. And we were talking today about Christine, Christine Buckley. Christine Buckley. Love her, a great friend of mine. And she, she, she would, she would have been, she would have been a teenager around the time that Sive was written yeah. in Ireland. But, yeah. but what's palpable in the play as well is Sive and Liam Scoob represent a younger generation. Mm. And matchmaking, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant because it's not something they're worried about because it's passe. Yeah. And there's this great scene where they come in and they're not aware of the discussion between Mina and and, and Thomas Sheen, and they think like this. It's not on their agenda. That's for the, a different generation, but it is, yeah. and it is because of her situation. Yeah. So it's amazing how She's the characters can, child. yeah, and mm-hmm. they can choose to, for their own for their own gain. It really shows the human. They can choose to make. Um, things disappear so they talk about the advantages of this match but forget to mention there's a 60 year gap yeah. between the, and, the and that, that and phrase of you'd sell your granny to whatever it's literally part of the and thing the, but the other thing just a final thing about Mina uh, yeah. Norma because she, yes she is she is a bit of a weapon but yeah. there's a terrible sadness around her as well and I guess that's what you have to yeah. find you can't just play a weapon she also got sold off she also was thrown into a situation where the nana's being a rip to her and she's left minding a child that has no parents and she could, you know, she, she I don't want to give too much of the story away, but she's, yeah, she's bit down, you know, yeah, and she, she, she justifies all her viciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, she's, she's not, she's not just bad for the sake no. of being bad. I better go. Exactly. <laughs> but there, there is a great line we came across today. What do the, what do the likes of us know about love? Yeah. That it's 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 survival. survival. Yeah. They're on the side of a hill and it's survival. Yeah, they could know lots about love if they were a let. Exactly. That would be my answer to exactly. that. <laughs> Saved by John B. Keane is at the Getty Theatre in Dublin from the 27th of January. Uh, previews opens on the 30th, runs through until the 9th of March. Full details oh, oh. on Getty Theatre. Oh, dot... oh, God, yeah. goes after that already. March. 16th of March. Yeah. Uh, at GettyTheatre.ie for full details on all of that.